hours behind the plow, and then uh, we spent another five hours doing different things, trying to fix it. Uh, we had the, the normal thing of you go isolate the part and then go get the part, bring it back, and that part doesn't work either. So you take it back, and they don't have any more to go find somewhere else. But Ed and I worked on that in the rain, then Randy came over, and we rewired the thing. So it does actually go up and down and sideways because when I was plowing on uh, whatever day it was, I was plowing last, <laughs> it, it wouldn't go up, it wouldn't go down, it wouldn't go sideways either. It just was free-floating. So I had to go around and around the church in circles, and whatever was the greatest pressure is the way the blade would turn. So it was an interesting way to do it, but got, got, it, got it done. Um, but those things did put me a little behind, so you do not have extensive sermon notes like you normally get. Uh, there is an outline there of greater challenge to our kids, because I know it's just easier to fill in a blank. You'll have to think a little bit for yourselves, put on your ears, pay a little more attention, um, especially since the verses won't be listed up here. You'll have to really pay attention to what verses I mentioned if you can write those down. Um, but we're grateful for the Lord's goodness and mercy to us in uh, so many different ways. Well, one of the things that uh, my family has been getting, I guess it's for about two years, is uh, the Voice of the Martyrs report comes monthly. How many get that? I know Ed gets it. Anybody else get it? I have found it very helpful in my own life. Um, it informs you about persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. And though I would have to say that their definition of what a Christian is is a little broader than, than I think Scripture says... Yet, I don't think there's any doubt as you read some of the stories in there that these are genuine brothers and sisters in Christ simply from the basis on how they respond. Um, it takes a genuine faith and a genuine walk with the Lord to be able to endure the kind of persecution that is occurring around the world and then respond in the way they have towards those who've been persecuting them. They... Um, they really do live out in trust of Christ's words in John 16, that these things I've spoken to you, that in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good courage, for I will overcome the world. They have that tribulation in extreme degrees, and yet they are of a courage, because they know our Lord is overcome. They live out the blessing of Matthew 5, 10 through 12. That's one of those blessings we hope we don't get, and yet at the same time, when we look at it and how those are responding, you can see, yes, there actually is a blessing there. Jesus had said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall cast insults at you and persecute you and say all manner of evil things against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you in heaven. The reward in heaven is great. I'm humbled by that. I find that when I think about that, whatever problems that I face are pretty minuscule. Plowlate is nothing compared to the kinds of things they go through. Um, and since we do live in a nation that has relatively little persecution, it can be hard for us to imagine what they're going through and how would we respond in such a situation ourselves. Because we do get upset over things that, in reality, you just are kind of minuscule. Um, it doesn't work out quite the way we want uh, we shouldn't. You realize that simple physics tells us that things are going to break down? That's the second law of thermodynamics. So we shouldn't be surprised when they break. And uh, even if they break at an inopportune time, 
And if anybody can ever tell me when something breaks at an opportune time, I would appreciate understanding that insight. <laughs> Things always break when you don't want them to break, right? Um, we also understand that we're finite people. We're failing and frail, and we can make promises to people and find out, you know what? We can't do it. We don't have the capability of keeping the promises we make. And that's frustrating to us, and it's frustrating to those we've made a promise to. When you add to that our selfishness and our sinfulness, um, sometimes we're on the receiving end of it, sometimes we're on the giving end of it. Should we be surprised or upset when bad things happen at the hands of other people? No, we should expect it. It's going to happen. Yet, we often are surprised. We get upset over things that are relatively minor importance and Perhaps that's where that phrase, bad hair day, is a fitting description of the pettiness with which we uh, respond, as if somehow the way your hair looks is of some extreme importance in life. It's not, okay? Yes, I know, we are busy, we combed our hair. I combed my hair this morning. I even put hairspray on it so it doesn't flop down in front. But you know what? If it was sticking all over the place, is my life over? No. Do I need to be upset about it? No, I have double cowlick in the back. Diane's always like, gotta get that down. Like, doesn't bother me, I can't see it. <laughs> well, consider, what would be your reaction towards those who persecuted you and you suffered severe physical torture? How would you respond to that? Richard Wormbrand spent a major portion of his life in the prisons in communist Romania and the communists, being atheists, tortured him extensively. And we'll just leave it at, at that without getting all the detail of it. It was bad. His response to those causing his suffering is encapsulated in this statement he made. Quote, love all men, my dear brothers, but bestow the greatest part of your love on the ugliest souls. Whoa. That's quite a statement. His own response, the ugliest souls, that would be those that actually tortured him, was that they were the ones he was most concerned about in proclaiming the gospel to, and he wouldn't stop proclaiming it. When he finally was released from prison and he escaped to the West in the late 60s, he had a simple goal, is to go back and be able to proclaim the gospel to even to his captors, to the ones who had done it. That was his heart. He had a great love for the ugliest of souls. That continues to be a common response of those who are persecuted because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Like our Lord, they respond the same way of asking God to forgive those who have done so much evil upon them because they recognize they really don't know what they're doing. They're blinded by the God of this age. They're blinded by their own sin. Could you do that toward those that murdered your spouse or your children or your siblings or your parents? And yet even this last issue of Voice of the Martyrs, there were more stories of people who do exactly that. Could you be at peace and be thankful in the midst of that? Now the answer, of course, is going to be no, unless there is something radically changed in your soul. This morning I want to continue our examination of Colossians chapter 3 and Paul's description of this kind of radical change that occurs in this Christian that would allow them to have peace and thankfulness in the midst of those kinds of circumstances to be able to respond in that kind of manner. We're going to concentrate on verse 15 about peace and thankfulness because it's just one more of the characteristics, the incredible characteristics that belong to the Christians walking with the Lord. 
And again, over and to Colossians so chapter 3, I'd like to read verses 1 through 17 again to set the context for our study this morning. Paul writes this, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, to impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and to put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free men, but Christ is all and in all. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Paul's description here is one of radical change. It's what was dead was made alive. Can there be more radical change than that? We are dead in trespasses and sin, and he made us alive with him. The focus of our mind changes from the temporal things of this earth to the eternal things of heaven so that the life in the here and now is viewed radically different. And we live in a different manner because we now have a view of eternity. We see eternal purposes in view, not just the immediate. The person becomes so heavenly minded they become of earthly good. I know there's that old phrase of he's so heavenly minded he's no earthly good, but I find it's usually the other way around. They're so earthly minded they're no heavenly good. The person who finally understands their purpose in life can finally be of some earthly good because now they're living to glorify God on this earth, in the present, rather than pursuing their own selfish desires. We find the old man is dead, a new man has come, and with it the motivations, the attitudes, the actions that used to mark us that were selfish has now changed to selflessness. What was sinfulness, we've changed and now walk in righteousness. These are radical changes. And while the eternal person we actually are has changed, the new man still lives in this physical shell the old man left behind. Still old ways of thinking. There's still old previous value systems that have to be changed. And so the scripture tells us the soul made alive by the Lord Jesus Christ is being transferred by the renewing of the mind through the washing of water of the word. As we study his word and understand God and his character and what he wants, our minds are transformed and changed and we view the world differently. That couldn't happen unless something radical changed inside us to begin with. 
The true knowledge of God then leads to putting to death old habits and we begin to form new ones. Things such as immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, those things are put to death and things such as anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, we put those things away. We set them aside. They're not part of us anymore. Or at least they shouldn't be. In the place of that selfish, sinful habits, attitudes, actions that used to mark our life and characterize us, we put on new ones. I understand this evening is um, the Super Bowl. And someone told me it was um, Green Bay and the Steelers. And so tonight there's going to be Super Bowl parties, right? And I understand somebody said there were people camping out at the stadium like days ago. I, if, if I understand what people do in these things, is they will get a jersey or something, they have to cap something that identifies them with that team, right? All right, so if you put on a sports clothing, Julia's looking at me, do you wear Giants things when you go to the games, you know, like a hat or something, a jersey? Yeah, okay, it's a common thing. You want to identify with that team, right? So this is the idea of this putting on, putting off. I've taken off the old sports clothes I had. I said, I don't want to be part of the devil's team anymore, all right? I'm not part of that. I'm a player on God's team, and I put on the jersey, and I put on the right pants, and I got everything I need in the hats and everything, and everything here says identifies I'm playing on God's team. I'm part of that, okay? That's the idea Paul has in here about this putting on, putting off. I put on the new man. I'm part of a different team. I know the game I'm playing. I know who I belong to. I know who's going to win. See, that's a great thing being about God's team. I already know who's going to win. And so we pursue those things. Because of that identity and because it is so strong, there's no longer any basis for prejudice within us as Christians. Nothing in ethnic or cultural heritage, nothing with social or economic standing, no whatever the previous religious practice were, it doesn't matter because we've got a new jersey on, we belong to a new team, and anybody wearing that, that jersey with us, we're part of the same team, and that's our identification. And so all those things are set aside. All those who believe and are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they're fellow brothers and sisters in him. They're akin. And actually more close to us and blood relatives. New characteristics begin to mark our life. Compassion. A heart of compassion. A tenderness towards those who are suffering. There's a kindness that becomes part of our life. And humility. That's directly against man's nature. Humility. Gentleness and patience begin to grow. And it's expressed towards all people. Not just those you like and love and those you think might somehow give you an advantage, but to all people, including those who do you wrong. This is different for the Christian. You learn to bear with those who cause you problems. You even forgive those who sin against you. The hallmark of the Christian's life becomes love. Not the kind of love we use so often in English, which really should be translated as lust. That's usually how it is. A desire to possess and use something for your own benefit. We also use love in terms of fond feelings of affection. But the love that's talked about here in Colossians 3 is agape. It's a love that's way beyond all that. It's a love of sacrificial giving. It sets its choice upon the one being loved and will sacrifice itself for that best interest of the one loved. That's God's love to us. That's the love he wants us to have for one another. Out of that love that we have as fellow believers become 
there's uh, built a bond of unity, and it perplexes the world. When you have people come in, it's very look around you. This is a very diverse group, isn't it? The world can't understand that. How can we who come from so many different backgrounds have such unity together and love each other and want to sacrifice for ourselves for each other's benefit? The world doesn't understand that. But that's exactly what demonstrates the world we belong to Christ. It's by our love for one another. Well, these next two characteristics we're going to look at in depth in verse 15. Love is the hallmark. We studied that two weeks ago. But there's also peace, and there's a thankfulness that starts characterizing our life. And again, these are things the world cannot understand. It can't belong to them because it has to have this radical change internally. You have to be something different, and God does that in us. Look again there at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful and be thankful. The word for peace here is the, the common Greek word for it, arene. It means a state of quietness, a state of uh, being at rest or tranquil. Um, it does have a wide range of nuances and how it's used. It can be anything from the absence of war to national security and uh, prosperity. Both could be called to be at peace. Uh, it ranges from personal harmony with others to the, and I, I found this is an interesting definition, the tranquil soul and blessed state of the devout and upright men after death. They're at peace. And how often we find that in scripture. He's gathered to his fathers. He's at peace. He's in that blessed state of being with the Lord. But all of this is in particular noted here as the peace of Christ. It is the peace of that comes from Christ, or the peace that he gives. It's not just something generic. It comes from him. And we find that the peace of Christ can be objective, relational, and subjective. I want to talk about each of those. First of all, there's an objective aspect to the peace of Christ, the peace that Christ gives or that comes from him. And it is the fact that it is through Jesus Christ we've gained peace with our creator. That's objective. It is by God's grace through faith in Jesus that we are justified from our sins. And as Romans 5.1 says, we have peace with God. It belongs to us. It came from Christ. Our war with him is ended. The enmity has been removed. We're actually part of his family. And so there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 tells us. Jesus who redeemed us, reconciled us, made peace with God through the blood of his cross. Paul already pointed that out in Colossians 1, 13, 20, and 22. Our souls then are at rest with him. And so these truths give objective foundation of peace, and the world can't have that. It doesn't belong to them. It only belongs to those who have Christ. A security based in God himself and in his character and what he has done for us already in saving us from our sins. And so it's proper that we can use this term as a name for God, the God of peace, which occurs several times throughout scriptures. Romans 15.33 is just one example of that title given to him. It's also why the gospel is referred to as the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6.15. Now, this objective peace, 
these truths also bring about a relational peace with God and with others, a harmony with them. I already pointed out Romans 5.8 says we're justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we have peace with God, not just an end to our conflict with him, but we're adopted into his family, and so there's a harmony that's with him now too. That's a different type of peace, uh, a more intimate peace, a deeper peace. The peace which Christ gives also establishes harmonious relationships with other people. So the peace that comes from Christ can help me in dealing with other people. For example, Ephesians chapter 2. That's just over a couple pages. Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 14 through 19, says this. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments, contained the ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. He might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in the spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling in God in the spirit. There was enmity between people. In this, in this particular passage, it's between the Jew and the Gentile. There was a division. They could not get past this thing. Christ destroyed that. He broke down the walls, the separation. And so that all people can come together, and they're built into one household. What we're just one manifestation of it. When we talked to David the other day, he did get back from Mozambique. His foot's doing a little better. He's hobbling around on it okay, but he said he was, said it was really weird because he found he was the only American. And so one group was over talking in Shangan, the other was busy talking in something else that he didn't know, and he was like, okay. <laughs> and yet there was still a, a peace and a harmony because he knew there were brothers and sisters in Christ. And then someone would come over and translate and kind of let him in on it. He appreciated that but they're brothers and sisters in Christ, even though they couldn't communicate that well. At least he couldn't understand what they were saying. Busy trying to look up in his dictionary, okay, what does that mean? And the conversation moved on. But a peace, God does that. God does that. This peace that comes from Christ, it, it removes the war that had been, had been there before. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be complacent about this peace, for it will take effort to sustain it. Paul says in Ephesians 4, just uh, one chapter over if you're still in Ephesians, he says this, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I, therefore, the person of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You need to walk this way. How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance, to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's still going to take some work because we're still going to be likely to do things that we want rather than really looking out for the best interests of others. 
love still has to grow. So it does take some work. Now, the peace of Christ then is objective. Mom loves to cause your problems. But it's not your fault. Blame society. Blame your lack of uh, a worldly wealth. Blame something, but not you. The problem is, is that whenever there's an excuse, then responsibility is never taken. And without that responsibility being taken, nothing is ever learned. There's nothing learned about how to respond to difficult circumstances in a godly manner. There will not be any spiritual growth. And without that, there will not be any true peace, only self-justification. The person may be able to become complacent about things, but they're never secure, tranquil, and in harmony with those they've been in conflict. Just self-justified. That's what the world offers. The peace that comes from Jesus Christ is directly related to our being controlled by the Spirit. And it's radically different than what the world offers. We find in Galatians 5, 23, it is a fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't matter what my circumstances. It comes from the Spirit living within me. We find that in actively seeking it, we gain it. That was Paul's point in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. A lot of you have memorized that because it's how we deal with anxiety. Be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. What do we do? Let a request be made unto God, and then what's the result? And then the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I take the turmoil and the things in my life, and I go to God in prayer, and I can bring it, but I first I've praised him. I've been reminded, my God's big enough for this. And so I can leave it there, and he can take care of it. I have peace. Much like when your children are little and they come to you, you know, and they, they ask you for something. I think of like the kids, you know, when are we going to have dinner? Well, we'll have dinner in a little while. Okay, and off they go, and we, they go play. They don't think a thing about it again. Why? Mommy loves me. Mommy's going to take care of this. Daddy loves me. He's going to take care of this. I don't have to think about it again. Can't we go to our Heavenly Father in the same way? Father, this is yours. I can't do anything about this. I have peace, a, a comfort, a tranquility, a security that my God is watching out for me. That doesn't mean there's not things I may need to do, but I know he's in control. We also find that Paul prayed that the Lord would grant his peace to others in every circumstance, Ecclesiastes 3.16. It is something proper that we pray on behalf of others and something we pray for ourselves as well, that we might have that peace. Perhaps that's why we find consistently in Paul's letters, both in his salutations, the beginning of the letters, and in his benedictions at the end, he includes a prayer for peace. To be in harmony, to be tranquil, to be quiet before our God, to have that resting upon us, that that's the way we can live our life. What about applying all this in life? We've already gotten quite a few ideas. But there's another word here that I think is important for us to, to grapple with to see how important this is. It says, is, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The word rule here, uh, means to act as an umpire. We saw a, a word related to that back in Colossians 2.18. Now, the task of an umpire is to direct the playing of the game by holding everyone to the rules and then to decide the winner of the contest. The broader meaning of the word then came to mean to arbitrate, to preside, to give a verdict, or to rule. It's to control, to direct. Now, specifically, this verse states that the peace of Christ is to rule our hearts. Remember, when you see heart 
In the scripture, if it's used metaphorically, in other words, it's not referring specifically to that thing beating in your chest, it's referring to the seat of understanding and volition, the ability to make a choice. It's not referring to the seat of emotion like we use it. So here we find then the peace of Christ is to be our umpire in how we understand the situations of life that come upon us and how we choose to respond. So what we think and what we decide to do. Now in reference to difficulties that come upon us in life, that's encountering the various trials that come upon us, as James 1-2 says, the peace that comes from Christ allows us to rest in security of knowing that God's sovereignty and his love for us can take care of us. Now, why do I say that? Romans 8.28. I know it's often used as a cliche, but it's a wonderful promise to us. We know. There's a confidence. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you called according to his purposes? Yes, in fact, you can't get away from it. You are called to be one who's going to glorify him. And if you don't walk that way, he has his habit of chastening you to get you back on track so you will do it properly, right? You're not going to get away from him. He's going to do it. He has called you. Now, the only question is, is you want to do it the easy way or the hard way? (laughs) I think it's better for us to do it the easy way. I love him. I'm striving. And so then I know, no matter what circumstances come upon me, I may not understand it, I may not like them, but I know I can have peace. My God is powerful enough to still use it, whatever it was, for his own glory, for my good. No matter what it is. Again, John 16, 33 tells us in this world we're going to have tribulation. But take courage, have the peace of Jesus because he's overcome the world. The peace arising from Christ can control us in the various situations of life if we will seek him. We're actually talking about about this in the high school class this morning. The mind of man plans his way, the Lord directs his steps. We plan our way, we're going to go this direction, and so off we go, and it doesn't work out that way. Anybody ever had that happen? Anybody not have that happen? Uh, No. That's life, isn't it? I think I'm going to do this, and something comes up, and wow. It's not going to happen that way. What's the proper response to that? Okay, I guess it's a different adventure than I thought. I wonder what this adventure is going to be. That's the better response, isn't it? I would think I'm going that way, and okay, I guess I'm going to do something else. What do you want, Lord? That's the proper response. And I can respond that way if I remember God's in control, and he can work this together, even if I don't like it. You're going to come something out of it. I wonder what it's going to be at the other side of this. I'm anxious for that to happen. I'm looking forward to it because I don't like what's going on right now. (laughs) But I can look forward to that. He can work me through this. And he's going to do all sorts of things in the midst of it. That's the confidence we have in this sovereignty which gives us a peace that affects everything in our life. What about in reference to relationships with others? The peace of Christ should be the factor that determines our actions and attitudes, whether we're initiating those things or responding to them. Difficulties, conflicts are simply part of life on this earth, and that's going to be true even among believers. Yes, we're supposed to love each other, 
But we're still going to have personal conflicts, aren't we? Anybody here completely sanctified to the point that you never sin? Nope. And until that happens, we're going to have conflict. Because my sin is going to conflict with your sin. Because we love each other. Personal conflicts are overcome if love is put into the action so that each is then going to seek the best interest of the other, resulting in harmony again. Now, ideally, this would always be true for believers since there are plenty of verses addressing the peace that exists among the body of Christ. Even here in this verse, notice it's plural. The peace of Christ is to rule the hearts, plural, of you all. All of you. Not just one or two. Everybody in the body of Christ. The peace of Christ is to rule. In addition, we're to be at peace with one another because we've been called into one body. He points that out in this text as well. Why? You're one body. You're one entity. There should be unity and harmony, and where there's harmony, there's peace. But the reality is just that there are times when we do stumble and sin. All of us would become selfish at times. There are times we make unreasonable demands of others, and we become stubborn, insisting on our, on our way or no way. There are also times that we really want to be in harmony with others, but they don't share that desire. They don't want it. They may desire to continue the conflict or even escalate it. We've all experienced that. What do you do then? Well, the peace of Christ is still our empire, even if we have to act unilaterally. I can't do something about the other person's decision and what they want to do, but I can do something about myself. I can choose to respond properly. I can try and make the environment uh, in such that the other person might respond properly, make, make it easier for them but I can't make a choice for them. And so I'm going to pursue peace. Now, pursuing peace is not rolling over and playing dead and being a doormat for those to wipe their feet on. It's not a peace at any cost. Christ didn't do that, did he? It wasn't peace at any cost. He often ended up with conflicts, and he wasn't afraid to deal with it. How often did he have to rebuke the Pharisees and Sadducees? A lot. Got him so upset, they eventually murdered him. He doesn't peace at any cost. He doesn't expect us to do that either. What he, does he expect us to do? To put into practice all the virtues that Paul's just talked about. That's what we're supposed to do. And that is the pursuing of peace. To be compassionate. To be kind. To be humble. To be gentle and patient. To bear with others. To be forgiving. That marks us. And if that marks our character and how we respond to things... You know what that's going to produce? Peace. At least it's going to set the groundwork for peace. That is what is meant really in Romans 12, 17, and 18. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Yet that is often our quest, isn't it? Someone did us wrong, we're going to get them back. No, we don't pay back evil for evil. We respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You do everything that you can to establish peace. That means live out the characteristics of being a Christian. Live out those virtues. That establishes the groundwork, the framework on which peace can be built. In that way, if the other person simply refuses to accept forgiveness, and some do, or they refuse to grant it, if you've been the one who's wronged them, then you can still go on. After you've done everything you properly can do, Go on with your life and simply leave the door open for reconciliation and restoration of that relationship so that there is true peace 
in the sense of harmony relationship again. But you go on with life. And how can you do that? Because you're at peace with God. You know you've done what is right. And so you move on. You're not indifferent. The door's still open. You're still longing to have it. But you can't change their mind for them. Simply pray that God will work on their hearts and change it. And then Paul ends this whole verse with a command. He says to be thankful. Literally, it's become thankful. It's something we're always working on. And yet these two concepts, having peace, being thankful, they're very closely tied together. And they are the consequences of the other virtues we've talked about over the last several weeks. Those who are at peace will find they have much to be thankful about. And those whose lives are marked by being actively thankful are going to find out they're also in peace. They go hand in hand with each other. And both arise out of the radical change that God makes in the life of a person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the third time that Paul has made a reference to peace in Colossians. And he's going to bring it up again, actually, in the next two verses and again in uh, chapter 4. It's part of his opening salutation, his desire when he and Timothy are writing, he, he thanks God for them. Colossians 1.3. It's part of his prayer for them. Paul desired they would respond to the things God had done for them in thanksgiving. That's Colossians 1.12. Later he adds that he would desire that part of their devotion to God is giving thanksgiving. Colossians 4.2. So this attitude of gratitude accompanied by actions of thanksgiving should be a normal characteristic of the Christian life. Over in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, Paul explains that always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord is a consequence of being filled with the Spirit. When you're walking with the Spirit, when the Spirit's controlling, guess what you're going to do? You're going to give thanks. It's automatic. If He's controlling you, you will find things that you're thankful about. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul states, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. People often ask, what's God's will? Well, this is one of those verses that's very direct. This is God's will. Be thankful. That doesn't mean that's easy to do all the time. It's not easy to be thankful in difficult circumstances. It can be very difficult to do that when you can't see the reason for what you're going through. And yet... This is what God wants us to do. We start looking for it, and we give thanks anyways, even if we don't understand. Hebrews 13, 15 explains what that's about. Through him, then, it says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. The sacrifice of praise is part of our worship. What is that? I give thanks to the name of God. I give thanks to him, his character, what he's done for me my trust in him for the future. I give thanks. That's part of my worship. Why is it a sacrifice? A sacrifice requires you to set aside your own limited perspective and hold on to the promises that God has given us by faith and thank him in the midst of all circumstances. You have to sacrifice your selfishness, your own wisdom, your own outlook, and give that over to God. Those things have to be sacrificed. Instead, we give praise to God. Now, in this passage, the particular cause of becoming thankful is this radical change that 
is made in us when Jesus saved us from our sins. That's the foundation for it. That's the upwelling for it. That's why we're thankful. We who were spiritually dead, we've been made alive. We who once walked in sinfulness, selfishness, and worldliness of the old man have been made into new creatures. And so we walk a different way. We're daily being transformed into a closer conformity to the image of Christ. God has been more like and so we who are recipients of God's grace, we have peace with Christ. That's objective. God continues his work so that we are recipients of his manifold blessings and promises in Christ. And so we're thankful. I can face the future too. Let me close again by asking you to consider the response of our brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer severe persecution around the world. Does the peace of Christ control your heart? These are folks that are maligned. They're slandered. They're lied about. They're held in disdain. They suffer loss of their material possessions, which may be stolen or destroyed. They suffer bodily from being beaten, shot, stabbed, burned. They suffer extreme grief when a loved one is murdered, sometimes in front of them. And yet they can respond with thanksgiving and praising God to be considered worthy to suffer for his namesake, just as the apostles did in Acts. If the peace of Christ can, can rule their hearts and they can be thankful in those kinds of circumstances, then certainly the same should be and can be true for us in the relative safety and abundance of the lives we experience here. True? So we can use them as our example and motivation. Asking the Lord to help us continue to grow in him, walk with him, and let his peace rule our hearts and to be thankful. And by that I'm talking about the, the ability that Christ gives us to be tranquil and secure in a vast variety of situations we will face in life. And we will face them. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Not, let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Then he added in John 16:33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good courage. I have overcome the world. We're going to face all sorts of stuff in life. And the peace of Christ can control our hearts so that we can face them properly. That's a subjective peace. Our ability to handle tough things that are going to occur is directly related to our being in Christ. Those who are in Christ can have his peace. Those who are not, they can only have the foolishness that the world offers. They can try and find some sort of substitute to get through things. But it's not the same thing. There are many things the world offers to try to substitute for peace. Let me comment on that briefly. I just pointed out that Jesus said that his peace is something different from what the world can give. Peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I to you. It's something radically different. What kind of peace can the world give you? Especially if you want to think of it in terms of tribulation, troubles, trials of life. What can the world offer? Substitutes. But one of those substitutes is sedation. Sedation. It's very popular, um, becoming increasingly popular, as doctors are very happy to uh, just prescribe a pill. This will take care of it. And some doctors are simply drug dispensaries. Now, a few of these drugs may be helpful if they let you calm down enough to work through the problem. 
but tragically, that very rarely happens. Generally, it's, oh, I feel better. I don't have any problems. And then on you go. You didn't work through the problems that are there. That's a substitute. That's sedation. That's ignoring the problems. Christ lets us work right through them. Instead of seeing the various trials of life that come upon us as opportunities to mature and grow, because that's what James chapter 1, verses uh, 2 through 4 tells us, they're just something to escape. And sedation is one way to escape it. People end up living with minds that are numb to the problems around them and the problems they're actually facing. That's one reason why some people call these drugs happy pills. The problem's there, but the patient could care less. They're just happy. Now, if a person doesn't want to take a pill, well, there's the old-fashioned remedy, alcohol. Don't get drunk. Hangover may just add to your turmoil in the morning, but hey, at least I have a few hours I don't have to think about it. And you know what? That's why a lot of people get drunk. It's exactly for that purpose. I want to escape for just at least a little while. That only compounds the problems, but hey, at least I escaped for a little while. That's peace. That's what the world offers. Another worldly alternative to true peace are methodologies of escape. Sedation's just actually in one way a methodology of escape, but there are other ways that people try and do this. Now, I'm not talking about taking time off to, um, to get some rest and relaxation. Even Jesus recognized the need for that. He didn't even have time... Actually, the scripture puts he didn't have, not have leisure even to eat. And so there was a point in, uh, told about Matthew 14, especially after he learned of John the Baptist's death, he sought out a lonely place. He needed to get away from the crowds to be quiet before God. If you recall the story, he didn't get it, did he? The crowd followed him. So he ministered to them, he sent them away, and he finally got some time alone in the mountain early in the morning. But he needed that. So I'm not talking about that. I'm referring to this constant quest to escape the problems of life through some hedonistic means, something that will bring you pleasure or get your mind off it. That could be entertainment. Entertainment itself is not wrong, but what happens if you just zoned out? I don't want to do the thing that just, I, 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 I got to relax, and so you zone out in front of the boob food. I got to go see a movie because I don't want to deal with life. Um, there are people, they have to have music on constantly. They can, cannot stand silence. Can't have it. Why? Because then you might have to start thinking. And if you start thinking, you're going to realize, I got problems. And I want to think about my problems. Just turn on the radio, turn on the music, put on the CD, get my MP3 player, put those ear things in your, your ear and, and lose your hearing. You must be losing your hearing because if I can hear it and you got it in your ear, you've got to be terrible. But it's the zone out. I don't want to deal with it. And yet, Scripture says, be still known God. In the quietness. And start working through things and understand where God is coming from and what he wants us to do. So that's one way. Another one is physical pleasures. This is Epicurean or immoral. It's the same thing. Something just to give me some sort of physical pleasure for a moment to get away from my problems or escape out of it. Sports. Life is about my team. I have to admit, I think it's a little odd that someone would go out to, I see two bowls in Dallas this year. Someone said that they were camping out there and ice came off the dome and hurt a bunch of people. All right? I want to say, if you have to spend, that would have been, what, three, four days before the Super Bowl? 
if your life is so wrapped up in this that you have to spend four days camping out and they're not letting you in the stadium or anything, go get a life. Honestly, get a life. There's so much more to life. But there are people like that. And it's their team. Their team is everything to them. So that's just a form of escape and entertainment. If my team wins, everything is wonderful. But if it loses, watch out. The person's miserable. Their identity has been transferred to something else. Hobbies. Hobbies can be great. But we need to be careful. They become all-consuming. They become a, a form of escape. And then there's the latest addition to the mix, computer games. Especially those that are the fantasy and the ultimate life games. Some of them you can get, you can have a, oh, what's the name they call these things, uh, your alternate ego on the computer. Avatar. You can, you can have your own avatar. You don't like your life, so your life becomes something else. I'll tell you, the weirdest one I've heard so far was a farmer who's addicted to Farmville. Like, you don't have enough farm chores to do. You know, if you actually did your chores, you might have a successful farm. <laughs> but okay, an alternate reality. The last word we alternative I want to mention this morning is psychology. And I'm not referring by that to human behavioral studies per se, but rather to all the ideas about how humans think and why they act as a Jew that are in contradiction to God's word. I just put that as secular psychology. There's no godly wisdom in it. And all of those methodologies that come out of that boil down to this. You can blame something else. It's not your fault. They'll find something else to blame. And as I said before, it usually ends up being the oldest woman, or the woman in your, your line that died. Because you can't blame your mom. She's alive and, and she'll get on to your case. You can't blame grandma. She's alive. She'll get on to your case. Because grandma, great grandma. She can't defend herself. It must be all her 